The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Arlene Sierra is a London-based American composer. She teaches at Cardiff University and has composed works for a highly impressive and highly international list of ensembles and institutions. Arlene has received numerous awards and fellowship for her music, including the prestigious Takamitsu Prize and the Charles Ives Fellowship, among many others. She's even had a piece nominated for a Grammy. This week, Arlene Sierra is in residence with the Utah Symphony as its composer in association. She took time out of her intensive schedule of activities to talk with us, and we are really glad to welcome her to the podcast. Arlene, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So Arlene, we are so glad that you're here and we are giving you no time here at Utah Symphony for jet lag because you just came in on Monday. You are here for your first of three weeks as our composer and association this season. What are your impressions so far? How's it going? Well, um, I started off by requesting a room with a view and the view is phenomenal. <laughs> Wonderful. So, so you did actually get a view. I, I did. I did. I didn't originally, but I'm glad I spoke up because the, the woman changed my room and the view of the mountains. I it, it was my consolation for not being able to sleep very well because when the sun would rise, I could see the mountains and then some snow came and you know, just, I don't I don't even think it rained in the city, but it snowed up there and it looks so beautiful. Again. And it's, it's just been a joy to look at those mountains. Um, it, it's kind of a, a funny thing because my, my surname, Sierra, actually means mountain range, of course, in Sierra Nevada. You know. um, and yet I've lived all my life in coastal cities that are pretty flat. <laughs> so it just means so much to me to be able to see glorious mountains like this. And I haven't really had a good look at the Rockies since I was a student at the Aspen Music Festival for a couple of years um, way back in undergrad and uh, master's days. So it's really lovely to see the mountains here. You're from Miami, aren't you? It's a far cry to come all the way to Salt yeah. Lake City, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I was born in Miami, but my whole family's New Yorkers and I've been going home to New York since I was a teenager. So I'm kind of from both places. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they have a lot of links, Miami and New York, of course. And, um, and yeah, both are Coastal cities, pretty flat and really humid. Um, <laughs> that's the other thing, the dry air. I've been in, in shock about that here and going through lots of skin lotion and stuff. But, um, well, I'm but so it, glad they can find you a view because many of the views downtown these days are of construction cranes. Oh, I get that too. <laughs> I'm used to that. But fortunately, behind behind the cranes and, and dwarfed, dwarfing the cranes are these incredible mountains. Well, you get to do... a not just um, symphony rehearsals and symphony performances, but you're doing a lot of uh, work with young people this week, aren't you? What do you yeah. have coming up this afternoon? You said you had a day with the kids. <laughs> yeah, um, wish me luck. It should be it should be fun. It's it's um it's an Elsie Stemma kind of group, from what I understand, and they get together after school, and it's grades one through eight, and apparently the group is more toward the little side. Um, so they, they've asked me to, to talk to them about um, looping and how electronic music figures into my work. Um, so I brought them some 
some um, old avant-garde looping music from the 1940s by Pierre Schaefer, and I brought them some really old hip hop by De La Soul from the early 90s and play them a few loops, and then I'm gonna play them some things that I've done that these loops. So I hope they like it. I'm also gonna have them try out a couple of things um, from Ravel's opera L'Enfant et le Sortilège, um, which has a frog chorus, where the frog rhythm sort of loop around. So hopefully, they won't find it embarrassing like my son said they would. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. We'll try it out. We'll see how it goes. Arlene, I'm glad you mentioned electronica because when I was working on the program note for the piece that the Utah Symphony is performing this week as we record, Aquilo, is it, am I saying that right? It all works. That's great. Yeah. Uh, the Brits say Aquilo, so I sort of gotten used to that. But um, Aquilo, I like that, but yeah. let's, let's go with that. Okay. <laughs> but I, when I was doing my research, I found an interview you did about this piece and about the inspiration for it. And the, your interlocutor in that setting actually asked you about your electronic music roots. And you had this great um, story for him about how you found your way back to acoustic music after being in the electronic world for a while. And I wanted, I always promised myself if I could ever talk to you, I'd ask you about that because I, I loved the answer and I wanted to hear more about what drew you back to the acoustic side of the compositional life and what, what in your orchestral writing still reflects back on those experimental days, if anything. It's interesting. I, I grew up with a family of classical music lovers. So I, I went to tons of orchestral concerts, chamber concerts, operas. I had the Met broadcasts like around my house every, every weekend. My parents were complete opera freaks. Um, so classical music was really a big part of my life. And I, I studied piano from the age of five um, and played all the standard piano rep and did vocal competitions and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I really, you know, didn't hear anything contemporary. The most recent things I heard were, you know, Bartok and Stravinsky, and that was it. You know, and like a lot of young musicians, I thought all composers were dead. You know, I had really had no idea about any new music. Um, but I was lucky enough to go to Oberlin, originally as a history major. <laughs> and I was, because I, I played piano, you know, reasonably, but, you know, once I got there to the conservatory and heard the real pianist, you know, I was glad to be doing liberal arts, but I was really attracted to these electronic music classes. Um, and I played synthesizers in high school bands and stuff like that. So, you know, piano was kind of a broader thing for me already. And the electronic music classes um, were project-based. So you'd be taught about various machines and tools and computer programs and stuff. And then they'd say, make a piece. Um, and it was, it was such an amazing way to just be creative with sound um, not having had a rigorous theory and notation background. Um, but I found that I loved doing it so much um, that I was determined to acquire that background. Um, and also composition and electronic music were kind of at odds at Oberlin in those days. Absolutely not anymore, but the, those are kind of the old polemical tensions that you know used to exist earlier, you know, my teacher's generation, I think. And um, you know, they didn't really consider the electronic people real composers. It was a, it was a bit of animus there. Um, and I, I found the one composition professor who didn't feel that way, which was Michael Doherty. And he was incredibly encouraging. And he was the one who said, go to the Aspen Music Festival, get composition lessons, you know, take as much theory as you can. And 
I did all those things and I, I showed up, you know, with a portfolio and showed it to him like a year later. And he said, you know, I think you should apply to Yale. And I'm sort of shocked, <laughs> um, but it, it was incredibly helpful to have a mentor like that and somebody who really understood that these things are part of the same art, you know, and, and starting in electronics for me was just a way to get toward the notes and toward structuring pieces. And once I acquired the tools I wanted to write for players, and maybe this is part of the anecdote that you read that um, electronic music concerts were kind of lonely. You know, I, I, I had grown up hearing, you know, attending concerts with incredible players and, you know, the electronic concerts were mostly, you know, one or two soloists maybe, and, you know, listening to tape pieces in the dark. And I mean, that was kind of had been happening too, but I really wanted to be back with players. And, you know, when you at a conservatory like Oberlin, you see what players can do, you know, I just wanted to be part of that. Um, so, yeah, I think composition it initially started with electronics to just get my ideas out there. But, um, you know, since I started studying at Yale, especially, I think, you know, writing notes and being part of the performance experience and writing pieces for the stage was really important. It's exactly the anecdote I was reacting to, the one you just described, <laughs> that mention of that mention of loneliness that really grabbed me because I've sat in enough electronic music concerts to know exactly what you mean. But sometimes yeah, you're just literally looking at a laptop. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you're just looking at a laptop. And I loved what you said in that interview, which I think you're hinting at now, which is that there was something very attractive about getting back in the room with music happening in real time with real humans again. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are, and I was part of the synthesizer ensemble and there are laptop ensembles. I mean, all this stuff has grown certainly since I was a student. And, and you know, I've been to EarCom and, you know, the kind of concerts with ensembles and the big, you know, uh, tape and kind of live interactive parts. And it's really exciting and I like it. Um, though I don't trust tech or something always goes wrong. Uh, there's this, <laughs> I mean, I, I've done a piece more recently, which really uses electronics. And I had a technician from EarCom who was an important part of getting the piece off the ground and getting it performed. Um, and I tell you so much less goes wrong with 80 members of an orchestra than goes on with, you know, three players in tech. <laughs> It's so true. I remember uh, doing a piece that had a big synthesizer component and the computer decided it needed to update right before dress rehearsal. Yeah, that's what happened. No. <laughs> we turned off the automatic updates at that point, but you never think about these things. And there's always something you haven't thought of that gets you like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about your acoustic music. So this year, this season, you're presenting uh, Aquila this weekend, and then in April, we'll perform the U.S. premiere of Nature Symphony and then a world premiere of Bird Symphony. But what I think is really fascinating, Paula Fowler, our uh, director of education and and, um, community engagement, said that you would be writing versions for youth symphonies. So you're adapting some of your music for uh, younger musicians to perform. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. um, So the, oh, I should say one thing. Aquilo I didn't know that enough people knew this. I think this is the U.S. premiere. It is. I forgot to say okay. that. Yes. <laughs> so we have two U.S. premieres and then two a world US premiere. U.S. premieres and one world premiere. That's right. Very um, exciting for us. Yeah. No, I'm excited. Especially uh, Aquilos has a very twisty, turny history. So to finally get it done in the States properly makes me so fine. And it shows that good things come to those who wait. This is 20 years right. old. <laughs> um, so, yeah, about the youth symphony piece or version, I should say. Um, 
so my piece, um, Nature Symphony, which is from 2017, um, has three movements. And the first movement is called Mountain of Butterflies. And it, it takes some ideas from an earlier chamber piece, my piano trio, Butterflies Remember the Mountain. So I've done these kind of two pieces, uh, um, taking ideas about butterfly migration, um, things about cycles and detours of cycles, and also about just the minute multiplicity of just imagining a butterfly migration. Um, and so I thought for the youth symphony, I would do a, a, a drastically reduced version of just a, a sort of an offcut of that first movement. So it's, it's only three minutes or so. Um, and it, it was hard to do. I was working on it just a couple months ago, but I, I managed to reduce a, a huge, you know, standard triple win orchestra with three percussion and mm -hmm. all the extras um, down to a youth chamber orchestra with double winds and only a couple of percussion bits. And, um, but I think it'll give enough of a sense that it, it'll stand on its own. And because it's so small and sort of portable, I called it Butterfly House because they sell these butterfly houses in the right. <laughs> so, so it's a little kind of simple version. Um, so I'll be hearing at least a first kind of crack at it by, by the kids tomorrow. Um, and I, I'm going to talk to... Um, their, their conductors are Barb, who I, I just Barb Scowcroft. Yeah, who seems like a real force of nature. So She's excited. amazing. She's one of our violinists. Yes, yes. So she was at the rehearsal this morning. So I just met her and she she told me how excited they are and how they're already. And I, I'm thinking about adapting a little bit of the this, this slower movement um, of Nature Symphony for them as well. So that there's a little contrasting movement for them to work on. That's so, yeah, that goes. That's kind of an amazing thing because I think that in those youth symphonies, you know, they're being introduced to the classics, to the dead composers, yeah. and so the <laughs> fact that they get to do a piece just for them and really work right with you is going to be an extraordinary event for those young people. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more discussion with Arlene Sierra. Whether under the stars, among the red rocks, or inside Capitol Theater or Bravanel Hall. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera connect people through the power of live music performed by world-class talent. Learn about one of our curated subscription packages or design your own package at usuo.org slash subscribe. Arlene, I hope you don't mind if I ask you kind of a big picture question right now. I'm curious for your perspective as an American who lives abroad. Um, I mean, it's not news for me to say that the classical music world is really attempting to reckon with representation right now. Oh, and everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, definitely. And I, and I think that at least from the American perspective, which is the only one I can really speak to, there still seems to be a lot of work to do. I mean, great effort, but a lot of work to do. So I'm curious what your observations are of these efforts in America and elsewhere from your vantage point in Britain and sort of in the wider musical world. And, and as somebody who will, I don't want to say be a beneficiary of, because that seems transactional, but be part of this representation shift. What are you, what are you seeing? How does it feel to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's great and it's long overdue. Um, and, you know, I, I think for, people my age and maybe older too, the composers working now, there was a sense that 
as a woman composer, at least, I mean, I can only speak for my own kind of marginalized group, but I would imagine that other um, minorities in our field feel the same, that you were expected to prove yourself and get along and get your work out there in spite of your difference rather than because of it. And I remember feeling as a young composer, you know, a little suspicious and a little worried about women's music, women composer competitions, women composer concerts, because I, I didn't want to feel like the work was being marginalized. You know, I wanted my work to be out there with, with the big time, you know, and I, I, was, I was quite worried about that, I think. Um, even though I knew it was good and helpful and well-intended, you know. Um, I think now there's such a push and such a final, you know, it's a relief to hear it being said finally that, yeah, there's something wrong with, you know, programs of all dead white men. And there, there's something wrong. And actually I think this is more worrying in some ways, something wrong with new music concerts that are all guys, you know, work being, being represented. Um, you know, at, at what I understand, it's something like, 20% women among composers working now. Maybe that's actually higher. Maybe it's 15%. I mean, if you look at, you know, ASCAP or PRS and, you know, the proportion of who's signed up as a composer, the numbers of women is really, really small. And of course, it's kind of vanishingly small when you start to get people of color um, as part of that too. And, you know, Yes, um, more needs to be done. More needs to be said. More needs to be recognized. Um, and it's absolutely not a quality issue. I, I, I did. Um, I was honored to be part of a panel in Britain um, that was giving research money to scholars of music for written by people of color, and they gave a. We went through something like fifty different research projects. And the amount of music and amount of composers, you know, within this one category, you know, from 1700 up to now, I mean, you know, it, you realize that there's been a kind of willful exercise of forgetting, you know, by an establishment that did not want to include, you know, really good work. So it's not an issue of quality whatsoever. You know, there's excellent work to be found by every kind of composer from, you know, every background, if you look. And so now people are looking and now people are thinking about it. And I think that's excellent. Um, but there's a, it's a lot of pressure, I think. You know, I, I think anybody who's a, a, an artist who's underrepresented, you know, we just want our work to be heard and appreciated. what every artist wants. You know? Right, I, I mean, I wonder what it says about me or the industry or both that, 20% sounds like a triumph. And I don't say that because I, because I think it's enough, but I, but I wish it were true because it just seems like such a big improvement over what it's been in the last couple of decades. Well, 20% is I'm not a goal, 20% but- 20% yeah. who exist, who are right. registered as working in terms of right. representation right. on orchestral programs, it's something like 2%, I think. Like That's 40%. probably why I feel that way because yeah. that 20% yeah. in that context would be a triumph. No, we're talking to, about two different things. I, 20% is people writing music who are hoping to get their work performed. Well, that's an important correction. The delta right. between those two numbers yeah. needs some quick work. It yeah. really does. You know, I mean, I, I've been represented on orchestral programs where I was literally the only woman composer for the whole season, you know, and 
of course, having that opportunity is fantastic. But at the same time, I got press about this where I was listed as the token woman composer right. on the program, which was so insulting. You know, I, I mean, if, if they want to just compare me to other living composers, you know, my, my resume is as long as the others, you know, to call me a token is just, I was shocked. And this was in a major newspaper, you know? So, so yeah, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I think, you know, all institutions and I teach at a big university, you know, we, we think about this too, in terms of curricula and, and what's on the syllabus, what's on the listening list, you know, there is work to be done by everyone to broaden out you know, our ideas about what, what good music is out there and who has written it, you know. <laughs> and there's so much work to, to be discovered. It's tons. I want to talk about your premiere, your world premiere. We have several premieres coming up. but your world premiere in um, the third week of April, I believe, mm-hmm. with uh, this Bird Symphony. And Green I'm one curious. Second. I've got the light of God here. It's oh yeah. no, you look like you're being, you know, <laughs> taken away to heaven. I'm just gonna move my curtains. I have this amazing southern view, but it's sort of. It was kind of an amazing effect, though. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, Arlene Sierra was just raptured during our podcast, <laughs> and. Amazing, amazing! It was your halo. It was your halo. It was anointing your speech. It was actually. So this. Uh, Really exciting premiere that's coming up. Not a token premiere, an exciting premiere that is, um, you know, well well deserved and well overdue, I'm sure, as well. Um, the Bird Symphony. What are we going to hear? I'm particularly curious because we're focusing a lot on Olivier Messiaen this season as well, and he's known for lots of bird songs, literal bird songs in his works. Will we hear some of that? Well, how are you? picturing these birds in this bird symphony yeah it's just me and olivier you know i and i've even had um <laughs> other colleagues come up and say how can you use bird song with messiaen just you know took all that over you know you got to be brave to to even think about that and and it's funny i actually maybe that's one of the advantages of being a woman composer in a way it's like you know none of these precedents none of this baggage is mine you know i i'm an imposter to the old regime you know so an upstart so, yeah i mean you know I, I don't feel like you know i mean i love messian's music don't get me wrong but i don't feel like messian has taken something away from me you know I mean, his his birds are different from my birds and his way of representing or you know of, of actually placing bird song in his music is completely different from the way that i do it so and and you know nobody owns the birds i love that you know um and also, I mean, not really by intent, but a lot of my birds are new world birds, I think. So I don't, I, I, I don't know why. I mean, though I, I had a British commission with electronics where I used British birds uh, and then I had a kind of imposter bird at the end uh, from South America. <laughs> but, but there is this kind of, you know, regional interest and kind of local color that comes with bird songs, which is wonderful. Um, and also uh, bird song, you know, has an urgency now that certainly Messiaen never could have thought about. Um, Nora Spiegel, who used bird song mm-hmm. well before Messiaen, <laughs> you know, he has that beautiful recording of, of um, the nightingale and, um, 
plans of Rome. Um, and is, wait, is it pines or fountains? It's pines. You're right. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> I doubt yeah. myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been on sabbatical, but I haven't. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, but that recording is the most moving time capsule of something that really truly does not exist anymore. Because yeah, if you've ever spent you know, two minutes in Rome, you see that all those beautiful squares are basically parking lots and there's so mm -hmm. much traffic, you never hear a bird. You know, it's just, it, you know, the, the recordings that we have are of things that are vanishing or at least are reducing in number really quite alarmingly so quickly. So, so it's, it's not just really about, um, you know, enjoying nature and wanting that to be part of one's music. It's really a kind of a sense of urgency and of loss um, that informs my choices about using birdsong. Um, but also it's just really fun. Um, <laughs> it's sort of, bird songs are so off the wall and, and they, 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 they fit into my comp composition process in, in a way that feels very natural. So I don't, really place a bird song in a way that's where you'll hear in certain messian pieces, here is this bird, and then here is this bird, and it's kind of a catalog, you know, literally mm -hmm. catalog, so, you know. A little bit like exhibit A bird. Yeah, it, it's not like that. The, the bird, fragments of bird song are sort of the building blocks of the pieces. So um, so in Bird Symphony, the, the first movement is called warblers, and it, it basically these warbling little bits of, musical ideas that are fragments of warbler birdsong, just make the whole orchestra into this mad, insane warbling thing. <laughs> and I, and I, I find it really kind of interesting and poignant on one side and also just really fun at the same time. So, but I think music can do that. You know, you can have layers and layers of mm -hmm. symbols and meaning and, all, and also energy and, you know, dance and, and kind of craziness at the same time. So we're talking about not just nature and the beauty of nature, but also the urgency and of nature, the man-made processes that are sort of interfering with natural processes. And I know this is a theme that goes throughout a lot of your work. You've got um, a movement of the nature symphony, I believe it is, that is based on beehives. And I think it had a little bit of an overtone of concern of hive collapse. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so the, the movement is called Bee Rebellion, and there were two kind of concurrent ideas going on at the same time. One was something I read about how bees actually can rebel against their queen, and I don't know, they murder her or they just leave. I, I need to read up on this again, but it was very dramatic. It's like an opera plot, and bees can really decide um, to start a new hive and to rebel literally and it's 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 interesting to think about that because you know from a human standpoint these could not be you know considered more cooperative and docile and you know kind of i mean the whole word drone you know sort of co cooperating and doing what you're told so so the idea of um a bee rebellion was really fascinating to me and musically that worked out in terms of a multiplicity of ideas where there's an undercurrent of something going against it um so that that's the basic essential idea of the piece, but underneath that was also the idea of, of 
hard collapse, which, you know, as we know from press over years, what, something like a decade now, that, that hard collapse has been a huge problem. It's taken time to figure out, you know, which pesticides are sort of leading to this kind of thing. And there are deniers still who are saying that this isn't happening and it's a massive, massive problem. Um, and so that, that idea of, you know, their cooperation, their constant energy, their productiveness being undermined and leading to collapse is something very dramatic and urgent that I wanted to get into that movement at least. Well, Arlene, we need to let you go because you've got a busy schedule. But before we do that, I have a personal question I want to ask you because I find it interesting that you live in a two composer household, at least two at this point, because your nine-year-old probably hasn't declared yet whether or not there'll be a composer, but two composers right now. And so many of us in this business are locked into it by marriage. We, we, all, we all marry into it. And Carol and I love talking to music couples whenever we can. So I'm curious, do you and your husband influence each other regularly as composers? Do you have to put up really specific guardrails about your work? How does it, how does it work for you guys as a couple? Yeah, we'll have to rope in Ken next time. I think he's going to come with me. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, well, my husband and I, um, Ken Hatsketh, he's a British composer. We met at Tanglewood. Um, so Tanglewood is the reason for my life, really, uh, being there. And we actually, um, we had to have a couple of different weddings, but one of them was there in Lenox. <laughs> so it's such a, such a, a deeply musical um, marriage and, and it informs everything you do. Um, yeah, I think it's been, it's, it's an incredible partnership because com composition is a very lonely business. Um, it's, you spend a lot of time alone with a lot of ideas in your head. You know? and, and we were so lucky because we met when we were grad students um, and Ken was way ahead of me. He was actually a prodigy. He was having pieces done by the Liverpool Philharmonic when he was you know, 12, 13 years old. So he had this amazing fluency and professionalism. Um, and for me, I came from electronics and from the art world, my mother was a painter. So I was kind of, you know, everything else in terms of creativity and acquiring all those musical tools. So we, we really balanced each other very well in terms of our intellectual interests and the things we'd argue about, uh, which was a lot. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we found in those early years that as long as we lived somewhere that had a door, <laughs> that we could both work, you know, as long as there was a door between us, we could keep producing pieces. And, and I think our, we, we like a lot of the same music, but our backgrounds are so different that the things that we do and the way that we do them are just totally different. And it's funny too, because now that we're, we're parents, it's, it's the same way. We, we agree in the end, but we have a totally different way of doing everything. <laughs> so I think that's, that's really healthy and it's worked out well. But there have been some tricky times. Like we had one long summer where we were both working on string quartets and that was, kind of tough, like, you know, because we could talk about our ideas and stuff, not too much, just, you know, just enough. And that's the other thing, he could talk for a hundred years about his music and I don't want to talk to anybody. So we, we have to balance that out too. But the string quartet is just stressful on its face. It's like trying oh, to find yeah. a ladder up to Olympus. I mean, forget it. For me, it was like no relief because yeah. I didn't want to talk about my string quartet. I didn't want to hear about his string quartet. There's <laughs> so much pressure on a string quartet, isn't there? It was really, really tough. But actually, yeah. that makes me remember it's still better 
it's not as bad for composers. I, the string quartet I was writing for was this British amazing group called the Carducci Quartet, and they are literally two married couples. Ah. The only way out of their quartet, they told me, is by divorce. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm grateful that Ken and I, you know, we're a lot more autonomous than that, and we each work on our own projects. And also, you know, having grown up in different countries, he grew up in Britain, obviously. Um, yeah, even though I'm, you know, I'm living in, in Britain, you know, I'm still an American composer. So we can't even, we couldn't even try for the same competitions most of the time, you know, so that, that kept things kind of healthy, healthy and separated just enough. So Arlene Sierra's secret to a good relationship, adore. <laughs> yes. I love it. <laughs> now it sounds like shared interests, but also the right boundaries. Absolutely. Boundaries are very important. <laughs> we are so glad that you were able to take some time out. I, I've seen your schedule this week. I know it's insane and we're grateful <laughs> for your time today. Arlene, where can our listeners find you in the world of the internet? Mm, lots of places. Uh, the best place is my website, which is arlenesierra.com. Uh, there's tons of music on there and perusal bits of scores and things to listen to and all the program notes. So the real stuff is there. Um, there's little bits of social media. Um, I've got a Facebook music page. That's just Arlene Sierra that has pictures from performances and other stuff. Um, I've got a Twitter, A-S-I-E, that's at Azzy. Um, and Instagram is, is Azzy212, that's my Instagram, but um, you'll also see uh, pictures of my cockatoo and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. It's like Joyce Yang's baking. We like to see the other sides. That's great. So, so, yeah, my, my social media is pretty fluid, but there's, there's mostly music and then a few kind of other stuff. So all of you out there, check out those different sources to find out more about Arlene and her cockatoo. <laughs> and again, thanks for taking out the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Be sure to visit usuo.org for information about upcoming performances. We hope to see you soon for a live performance. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. For questions about the show, you can reach us at ghostlight at usuo.org. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>